Just a little reminder, we'll be moving back into the building next week and meeting all together at once at our old time of 10 o'clock a.m. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach and for the gathering of the saints and for all those who prayed for me to preach well and to get well. I pray for the word to come to my mouth and from my mouth in truth and in passion and in an order that will not confuse and in a way that will save the lost, properly shepherd the saints who are in Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter together, and we've been exhorted, that is, encouraged through the scriptures into knowing that we are, as born-again individuals, a people who have eternal hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we are a people who will endure our trials, which were provided for our own sanctification, and that we are a people of love, love for one another, love for our God, above all things, and love for our neighbors, that is, unbelievers in the world. And that we are a people who can and must fight our sinful impulses. In today's message from 1 Peter, that is, chapter 2 and verses 4 through 6, I'd like to present the message in just a two-pointed outline, if you will, a message that will answer two questions. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? That is, who does Peter say that he is in this epistle? And number two, who are we? That is, who are we as born-again individuals, individuals in God's church? Let's get into today's message. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That is, as you, Veritas, come to him, who is Christ Jesus, as you come to him, as you are first awakened as a newborn in Christ, as you first awake in the morning, as you prepare to go to work, as you prepare to go to worship on Sunday and have fellowship with other believers and with neighbors. That's what as you come to him means. Once you are born again, you are always before the Lord. You are always coming to him. And then Peter goes on from there to give an analogy of who Christ is. Kids, analogy means he's painting a picture with words. He's a living stone, Peter says, rejected by men. And here Peter is referring to the fact that Jesus came to earth a long time ago 
as a man who was rejected by other men. That is, they did not believe that he was who he said he was, the long-awaited Messiah who would save the people unto their God. So he was rejected. This was all part of the Father's plan. Over 700 years before Jesus came to earth as our Savior, the prophet Isaiah had this to say of him. He was despised and rejected by men. We hated him. We wouldn't have been any different if we were back there then. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was heartbroken. He created us. And yet, we rejected him. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We did not hold him in any kind of royal honor or his even simple high regard. Surely, he has borne our griefs, Isaiah goes on to say, and carried our sorrows. He bore our sins on his body at the cross. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We looked at him as though he was the one who was being struck down by God. Afflicted. He was mocked and spat upon. I doubt that's happened to many of us, at least yet. He was beaten until the flesh came from his body. He was nailed to boards and hung up to suffocate in our place. He was afflicted. But he was also chosen and precious, Peter goes on to say. He was God's own son, pure and holy, living in heaven with God the Father and selected before the dawn of time as we know it to be the savior of man. And you can read about that in 2 Timothy 1. So he was chosen and he was precious. And he was rejected, and he was smitten. But what about us? Who are we? Who are we as born-again individuals? What does Peter have to say? He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Here, Peter is using another metaphorical analogy to describe who we are. That is, who we are becoming. He's comparing us to God's temple of worship long ago, made by human hands, constructed by Solomon under God's own direction with specific instructions when he says we're being built up as a spiritual house. He's comparing us to the temple in which the worship of God was to be performed so long ago, 
a temple as magnificent as it was, built by earthly precious material, and yet a temple that could and would be destroyed. That would be replaced, in fact, by God's new temple, a spiritual temple, which is the church, sanctioned by Jesus Christ, of which he himself was the foundational spiritual stone. In verse 6 of these passages, he, the Christ, is called the cornerstone, which is in reference to a building block that was used to support the entire foundation of an ancient building. It was the stone that would be placed at the base of and in the corner of a building that was to be constructed, connecting and supporting adjoining walls, floor, and ceiling. It was the foundational stone of the entire building, just as Jesus Christ is the foundational living stone of the church. So Christ is our foundation, and we, here called living stones, are being built up into his new temple of worship, the church. It's a much different temple than that that was made by human hands. It's a temple, if you will, that's being constructed of human souls and a temple which Christ has built, a temple which can never be destroyed. Once you became born again, you became a living stone by which Christ's spiritual house would be constructed. Look around you, Veritas. Our place of worship is no longer in buildings built by human hands. Made with earthly materials, we of all churches should know that. We've been in what? Six buildings in the last 12 years and never stayed in one yet. It's constructed of your brethren. That's what today's spiritual house, the church, is built of and built by and of Christ himself. I want to call to mind some passages concerning Jesus and the woman at the well from the book of John, chapter 4, and in verses 19 to 24. But first, let me give you a backdrop. Jesus is walking through the countryside, evangelizing a lost world. He's with his 12 disciples, and they leave him. And they go into town to get some food, and he, as though he needed any rest, sits at a well. And a woman walks up, and not just any woman, but the town harlot. She's been going through men her whole life, and she's on her fifth husband. And Jesus, knowing all of this, during their conversation, lets her know exactly who she is, even though they've never met. And she, stunned, says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say 
that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, that statement was in reference to the fact that she was a Samaritan, and the Samaritan people had mixed Judaism with all of the pagan religions for many, many years. He goes on to say, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we worship from this building. That's what in spirit and in truth means. And only if you're full of God's spirit. If you're born again, your worship comes in spirit and truth. If you love him and you call him yours and he calls you his. Your body is a temple, Paul says. And here Peter is saying, all of you together are forming the new temple, a spiritual house. And you're worshiping from that spirit. The scripture in today's message says that we are also to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are to be a holy priesthood. What does that mean for us, to be a holy priesthood? Well, if you come to us visiting today from a Roman Catholic or perhaps a Lutheran or maybe an Episcopalian background, you might look at one of us preaching Protestant pastors and think, oh, there's the priest or some kind of advocate who intercedes for the people, stands between God and the people. But we don't practice that here. And so if you do come from one of those backgrounds and you want some explanation as to the difference you can stay after. I'll explain to you if you like. But what Peter is actually doing here is making yet another Old Testament comparative analogy. Many of you know this, but some don't. In the Old Covenant, in the tribes of Judah, the Jews, priests, had been set apart from the rest, appointed by God along certain familiar lines to be the only ones who could intercede for the people directly to God. They would offer up real sacrifices. Alive animals would be brought to death. Burnt offerings would be placed upon the altar as acts of worship and as acts of temporary atonement for the sins of the people. And the priests were the only one that could do this. Everything had to be done in a specific way and a specific order in order for the sacrifices to be acceptable to God. He himself, having been the one who gave the instruction through Moses as to how all of this 
was to be accomplished. Since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, however, no one person in Christ, that is, no one who has been born again, is to be thought of as a priest in this way. Since the one true high priest, the written word says, Jesus Christ has already come and made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. He's given his life as a ransom for our sins. If you'd like to read some scriptures about Jesus as the true high priest, you can look it up in Hebrews 2.17.3.1 or 4.14, just to name a few. But here Peter says that we, the living stones that make up God's spiritual house, are to be a holy priesthood. That is, we are all priests. If you're born again, we are all set apart to be holy in comparison to the rest of the world, that is, the unbelievers. Having been made so by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and due to our belief in him. The scripture also goes on to say today that we have a job, and he writes it on our heart. We are to make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These spiritual sacrifices are to be our form of worship in the new covenant. So I have a question for us, Veritas. What are our spiritual sacrifices? What are our spiritual sacrifices that we are to make? Here are my three prime examples. Number one, from Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, Paul speaking here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our bodies, that's our first spiritual sacrifice. We must give up our love of our former sinful pleasures and replace those with holy actions, holy deeds. Before we were born again, we loved our sin. It says so in the Word, but you should know that by now. We loved it. We loved it. The rest of our life is a battle against loving it. And we have a warrior on our side, and that is the Holy Spirit, the promised presence of Jesus. So we can and will and must fight our sin. That's sacrificing your body. Number two, second example from Hebrews 13 and in verses 15 and 16. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So praising God with our mouths, here at worship, on the town, to your unbelieving neighbors, and sharing what you have with others. Those are sacrifices. And finally, number three, from Philippians 4 and 18, from Paul, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So your offerings to God, your money, food and clothing for the needy, these are wonderful sacrifices and required of you. It should be written on your heart. You shouldn't have to fight to do these things. They go to move the ministry forward and to take care of the needy. And you've been so generous. I could count the many generous sacrifices that you've made, especially for such a small church. Keep it up. I'm sure there are others, but I think you'll find that they fall into one of the three categories above. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church, and we are his living stones being built up into the church. But for what purpose? For what purpose? In short, today's message says we're being built up into God's church, of which Jesus Christ is the foundational stone in order to bring him the worship that he so rightfully deserves. And states, we could have only done this through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our subsequent belief in him. And I'm going to back that up with another scripture. It's actually part of the next sermon, but it really backs this one up as well. 1 Peter 2, 9, if you take a look at that. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking to Christians here. A people for his own possession. And here it comes, the reason that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Everyone who's called to be born again is called to proclaim God's excellencies, his glory in front of a broken world. It all goes back to one thing. All things were made for the glory of God. And in this case, especially his spiritual house, the church. 
I'm going to finish today with the call of the gospel, and we don't have to look any farther than the text. Let me quote to you from 1 Peter 2 and verse 6, and he's citing Isaiah 28 here. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In this final quote, we find the call of the gospel. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you're an unbeliever and you're listening here today, you've heard us say that the purpose of the church is to worship God and to bring glory to his name by making spiritual forms of worship, specifically sacrifices of time, body, and money, and so on. But none of this is possible for you unless the following message or some other gospel message you've heard or will hear opens your heart. Whoever acknowledges that he or she is a sinner from birth, and cannot be saved from God's wrath as a punishment for that sinful character except through the willful sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross will not be punished eternally upon his or her death. That's what whoever believes in him will not be put to shame means. Put to shame in this instance means damned. You have to look for an archaic definition for the word confounded, which was the original word for shame, to find this. Whoever believes in him will not be damned, which is both separation from God for all eternity and punished in fires of a place called hell. Yes, God and the devil, Satan, are real. God is the being upon whom the entire universe is hanging. He created everything and everything for his own glory. And he's perfect and he's holy. And his desire is that all men are saved. This is not meant as a judgmental statement upon you if you're an unbeliever. If you get to know the people here at Veritas, you'll know that. It's simply a truth that every member here, member meaning they are professed believers in Christ and they've been baptized and we have recognized them as Christians. Every member here from every walk of life has had to face this truth. Eternity in torture and apart from God or eternity with God, worshiping at his feet, walking with God, and in eternal bliss. You've heard me talk about hell. Eternal bliss includes, like I said, walking with God and worshiping him and loving him and knowing him, but it also includes no more pain, 
no more sorrow, no more death. We've lost six since December, people. No more toil with sin. No agony. No worried about COVID-19 or who's going to win the election in 2020. Please, please come forth after church and talk to one of us pastors if this gospel message or any other that you've heard lately has opened your heart and you suddenly feel a warmth towards the person of Jesus Christ. Come up and see one of us today so we can instruct you, will you? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in worship and in praise, humility. For your kindness has led us to repentance, and your Holy Spirit has opened up our hearts through your word. Open up the hearts of others through your word now today, through this word. For you have said it in your word, that your word will go back, go out, and not come back empty. Empty of souls. I pray that the congregation will be properly shepherded and that souls will be saved. In the name of Christ, amen.